This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My talk, We Alone, How Humans Have Conquered the Planet and Can Also Save It, is the title of a book I published a year ago, exploring where the bizarre urge to conserve other species came from and how we can rally global collaboration to save the planet. I want to start by dispelling the view that conservation is a modern invention of the West. I will show instead that conservation is a truly ancient and universal feature of all societies which learn to live within ecosystem limits. These universal lessons offer hope for living within planetary limits too. So how does conservation feature in our rise to global conquest? What evolutionary quirks made us so super dominant? And how can we redirect those skills to save our planet? Darwin's mentor, Charles Lyell, wrote in The Principles of Geology in 1833 that in conquering the Earth, we diminish and exterminate other species in obedience to the general laws of nature. And he adds, largely beyond our control. Lyell was right about exterminating other species. We and our livestock now exceed 90% of all vertebrate biomass, up from less than a half percent in the Pleistocene. He was wrong about the rules of nature being beyond our control, though. At the very peak of our conquest, we've broken nature's rules by saving even the most threatening of species, the elephant, lion, wolf, and bear. Conserving species that endangering compete with us is an evolutionary paradox when you think about it. Yet, I show that paradox can be explained by tracking the evolution and the diversification of conservation, from storing food and water for survival, to husbanding domestic plants and animals, pollution control, and still in the making, saving other species and protecting the planet from our excesses. Conservation has steadily widened and deepened from our ecological emancipation from Charles Lyle's laws, and with our growing worldly knowledge and sensibilities in the global age. Today, we conserve things as diverse as the Colosseum, the Mona Lisa, the Grand Canyon, and even cultural traditions such as Thanksgiving and Memorial Day, along with domestic breeds of animals and plants, biodiversity, ecosystem processes, and so on. In other words, conservation has come to include anything we value, and wish to spare against the ravages of time. Richard Dawkins, that ardent proponent of the selfish gene, made an exception when it came to us. He said, imagining and planning for the long term is a new evolutionary invention. The future exists only in the human mind. So in our case, we're entitled to throw out Darwinism. David Sloan Wilson goes further to say, we now live in a post-selfish gene age. The common good and altruism are the very hallmark of our success. Saving other species is the highest form of altruism, beyond self, kin, tribe, nation, and even humanity itself. After all, we've set aside over 20% of our lands for wildlife and struck international agreements to conserve biodiversity and, and curb greenhouse gases. We are presiding over a tumultuous ecological transition from the Holocene to the Anthropocene with the unrivaled power to destroy, conserve, and resurrect species 
and even create new forms of life? How can we use that power to scale up from our scattered successes in curbing pollution and saving species on a local scale to saving the planet? I was fortunate to grow up in the savannas where conserving food and water for hard times was so ingrained in traditional societies that I wondered if conservation lay deep in our evolutionary history too. I found ample evidence in studying how Maasai pastoralists in Amboseli coexist with wildlife and survive droughts far better. Herders shadowing wildlife migrants through the season displace them from the best pastures and conserve fodder for the dry seasons. Surfing the green waves of pasture across the landscape raises herd production and coupled with conserving dry season pastures limits drought losses. Incidentally, I have a disclosure. The Maasai gave me cattle, urging me to see Amboseli through the eyes of a cow from their perspective. Needless to say, I raised more than a few eyebrows about my scientific detachment and wildlife credentials in driving cattle through a game reserve. Yet, seeing Amboseli as the Maasai do showed me how culture, cooperation, and reciprocal ties among herders led to the ecological success in the wildlife-rich savannas where we evolved. Their reciprocity extends to the highest level of altruism, what they call a sattva, meaning the generosity of giving cattle to those down on their luck with no expectations of return. Interestingly, the Maasai have no word for conservation. Instead, Eramatri captures the far deeper ethos of a family's welfare being tied to the success of their herds, the health of the land, and the entire Maasai community, and even to wildlife. Wildlife is second cattle to the Maasai, conserved and used in hard times to combat starvation. Ellen Ostrom won the Nobel Prize for Economics in showing the success of all societies, sharing common resources, whether pastures, fisheries, or even public utilities such as parking lots and airways, depends on common rules governing use and responsibility. Ostrom sees these time-tested universal rules as the best hope for managing the global commons too, but only if we can reach across tribal, ethnic, and national boundaries to engender our caring and sharing nature. The standard explanation for our ecological success is bipedalism, tools, and a big brain. Yes, these are key elements of our success, but they're far from the whole human story. After all, chimps share these same traits as us, and baboons none of them. And yet, baboons are far more successful than chimps, numbering second only to us among Africans' large mammals. I see our success instead in breaking evolutionary and biological straitjackets, constricting other species. From our first bipedal steps, we went on to unhitch anatomical, physiological, and metabolic constraints, to break brain-to-body scaling laws, develop highly efficient neuronal networks, and marshal the use of fire. It is the interlocking suite of changes, not any one of them, that made us an all-purpose species, able to walk and run far, store food and water, and so breach ecological and ecosystem barriers. And in addition, hurl tools with accuracy and explosive velocity, upscale prey size, 
render down indigestible plants and combat large predators. Above all, it was our expansion of cooperation beyond kinship networks to form larger bonded groups able to divide tasks and achieve greater foraging and reproductive efficiency that really set us apart from other species. Larger bonded groups allowed us to plan, hunt and forage collectively, to share and increase the spoils among members and so outsmart and outcompete smaller groups constrained by kinship ties. Such returns to scale, as economists call it, shifted evolution from competing with other species to competing with other human bands. So creating selection for group cooperation, cultural adaptation, planning, and the common good. Intergroup competition set the stage for proception. That is allowing us to look ahead, anticipate hard times, and conserve resources collectively as the Maasai do. In We Alone, How Humans Have Conquered the Planet and Can Also Save It, I concur with Joseph Heinrich in his book, The Secret of Our Success. We crossed the Rubicon two million years ago when culture rather than biology became the driving engine of the evolution. Cultural adaptations allowed us to break Shelford's law of tolerance, the environmental constraints restricting the distribution of plants and animals. In doing so, we became the ultimate multi-niche, free-ranging species, able to break geographical barriers and conquer the world. Freed from the narrow niches of other species, Homo erectus and later Homo sapiens became intercontinental travelers during the Pleistocene, though far fewer yet than the bison and elephant. We finally broke the constraints of hunter-gatherer bands and arose to ecological dominance in the Neolithic and this by domesticating plants and animals and re-engineering the landscape. Populations soared from 6 to 150 million 3,000 years ago, triggering permanent settlements, surplus food production, and trade and commodity exchanges. A diversity of husbandry practices sprang up, spawning our extraordinary richness of livelihoods, languages, and cultures. Robert Wright sees these newly emerging civilizations as experiments in living within the limits of food supply and environment, and ramping up the benefits of ecological and economic scale from ecosystem to regional levels. Despite the rising human temper, the Malthusian trap of food supply curbing population growth and prosperity largely persisted until the Industrial Revolution. Then, in just two centuries, we finally broke yet another ecological barrier Liebig's Law of the Minimum, which states that populations are limited by the nutrient in shorter supply. By harnessing fossil fuels and manufacturing fertilizers, pesticides, tractors, and combined harvesters, we were emancipated, emancipated from the natural productivity of the land, from reproduction, location, and even seasons. Population surged to 7 billion by the 20th century, causing mass migrations from farm to city. In the process, we became a super-dominant species, creating a new ecological age, the Anthropocene. On the downside, severing the intimate aromatry links between family, food production, consumption, and community, weakened those ecological and social feedbacks between our actions and consequences. 
The massive surge in resource use and waste production has transformed natural biomes like the American prairies to agro-industrial landscapes, overriding the natural forces governing the atmosphere, lithosphere, and biosphere. Our outsized destructive footprint has created a global tragedy of the commons beyond our ambit of awareness, feelings, and even caring, and far beyond national jurisdictions and classical economic accounting. I like the quote from Kenneth Balding, an economist himself, who cautioned anyone who believes in indefinite growth on a physically finite planet is either mad or an economist. Sadly, we can no longer use the natural connections, bonding, ancestral, close-knit communities to live within Earth's physical and biological limits in today's world. What we can and must do, though, is use unnatural reconnections to harness technologies that expand our sensory and emotional reach to give us the foresight and skills to plan the world we want, rather than inherit from Lyle's law of nature. This means deploying satellites to map and monitor the biosphere, and using the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, smartphones, and the social media to close the yawning information in economic gap, both within and between nations. We must also adopt a circular economy and renewable energy sources to increase resource efficiency and reduce emissions. Above all, we must account for the services nature provides us and the damage we cause nature. This calls for replacing land-hungry, destructive industrial farming with microbial-grown meat and cereal products which spare land for biodiversity and alleviate animal suffering. In We Alone, I stress that we do have the tools, the knowledge and governance rules and the compassion to husband the earth if we deploy the unique capacity for foresight, cooperation, and conserving other species that made us so distinctive and successful. Modernity has enabled us to climb the conservation ladder from the lower rungs of survival to the higher rungs of saving species and our environment. We're not yet on the top rung though. COVID and global warming have woken us to the folly of myopic self-interest and the need for cooperation to avert global crises. Detecting and shrinking the ozone hole, saving whales and savoring our natural and cultural heritage shows us we can rise to the top rung of conservation action. By the end of the 21st century, we shall have passed peak population and materialism. Cities are humankind's most distinctive creation and our new habitat. As in ancestral hunter-gatherer bands, cities show the same returns to scale social benefits, economic output, scientific innovations, technical skills, and energy efficiency all increase at greater than parity with city size. The sheer concentration of knowledge, skills, cultural diversity, and pluralistic values in our cities birthed the modern conservation movement. Why? Because here we suffered most from the consequences of our actions in the polluted air and poisoned rivers of our throwaway society. For better or worse, cities where three-quarters of us will live by 2050 will define our future and the fate of the planet. I want to show two contrasting views of Ambicelli to ask whether our superdominance will destroy nature or whether our bizarre evolutionary quirk in conserving other species 
will save it. This is an image of Africa as the tourist sees it in a national park. The last of the wilds where the great herds still survive and our human footprint is barely visible. The second photo is Amboseli as the Maasai see it, their ancestral home where wildlife is incidental to their livestock. Here where humankind emerged some 350,000 years ago, we have long been the dominant ecological force shaping the savannas. We have followed Lyle's law to an extreme in displacing and exterminating other species. There's no doubt about that. But as Amboseli shows, we have and can conserve other species in defiance of Lyle's law. Now imagine if elephants became as superdominant as us ecologically. They would number a staggering 100 billion and decimate the world's woodlands and forests. So we should take heart that among all species that may have come to the planet, we alone have the sentience, knowledge, and capacity to make the new epoch, the Anthropocene, a fitting world for our own descendants and for all life. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.